And we're back. Yes, we are. Episode six of Brainy Days. <laughs> hey, dude, I have a question for you. What's up? You want to get brainy? No. <laughs> <laughs> So today, we're going to be talking a little bit about what it's like to be a graduate student, uh, so master's degree or whatever, PhD, and I'm going to try as hard as possible to say PhD and not PhD. PhD? PhD? It sounds like I'm saying Love me some PhD. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I want to know that people know what I'm talking about. Yeah. So uh, as a quick little summary of what we're going to chat about today, in addition to just doing the degree and getting the work done and taking the classes and some of us have to move to a new area and whatever. So there are all these really intricate mental avenues that come along with being a graduate student. Lifestyle things that we have to figure out. And there's not much guidance for. You're just kind of on your own. Right. So that's why we want to have this episode, which we'll jump into talking about this stuff in a second. But this is also for not just students who are maybe thinking about applying or enrolling in a master's degree program or a PhD program, either now or in the future, or are in one right now. But if you know somebody who is in one of these kinds of programs, or maybe your family or friends are in some of these kinds of programs, this is a good opportunity to learn a little bit more about how they're affected on a day-to-day basis by being a graduate student, things that we don't really talk about, I guess, openly with people who may not know that, you know, yeah. We have to deal with with specific things and whatever. So that's what this episode has to offer to either graduate students or people who know graduate students. Mm-hmm. If you don't feel that you would benefit from listening to this episode, then totally luck, cool. Lucky enough, this is by your own volition listening to this right now. So <laughs> You're I'm not flattered. Forced, <laughs> but yeah, you may totally skip this. We will talk a little bit more at the end about kind of stress and how that physically affects us and how it affects our bodies and our brains. So that's kind of interesting in general, but we will have another stress episode in the future, specifically for stress. Anyway, that's my little preface for kind of what, what we're going to talk about today. There are so many things that come with being a graduate student, and I think a lot of people who aren't graduate students know that graduate students, we like to complain. Yeah, we do. About things. That's all we have. It's <laughs> all we have, exactly. So first of all, <laughs> Sometimes that's all we need is people to just hear us be like, uh. Yeah. <laughs> um, you don't even need to say anything. Paul does that for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, of course, there are all these lifestyle changes you have to make abruptly when you go from either being an undergraduate student to a master's student or a PhD student. You know, you can go directly from your undergrad to, to a PhD. So one of the, the biggest things is that like a lot of master's and PhD programs are extremely time consuming. And so on top of like coursework, we also have, in some cases, like and Jeff and I are both in the sciences. So our experiences are maybe somewhat similar, but it, it, it could certainly vary across different um, avenues and uh, professions or directions, or whatever you're in. Right. And this isn't necessarily an episode about the life of a neuroscience PhD student. We're going to try to generalize some difficulties or things that graduate students struggle with, whether it be, you know, master's or PhD. But yes, go on, Paul. Yeah, but it, it is very time-consuming in the sense that we have courses and we have research or theses or dissertations that we need to be working on, um, which is usually, in a sense, sort of extramural from um, 
the the coursework that we are, are required to complete and so there at first is just a lot of things that we have to immediately start thinking about and juggling as soon as we start a master's or a phd program um and one of the big things that you might hear a lot of phd or master's students talking about is time management it's all about time management it's like the one thing that we have to figure out and Everybody has a solution for it, and everybody has to figure it out differently. Yeah. So the solutions often feel not useful all the time. Although the, it, it, it's always helpful to hear new techniques on time management. Um, yeah, I mean... Honestly, everybody... It feels like everybody has to figure it out on their own. And, like, I, I, I've done a master's, and I'm in, I've completed one year of my PhD. And I, I cannot say that I figured out time management yet. <laughs> I'm like a hit or miss with it sometimes. Like sometimes I'm really on top of my stuff. I don't know. I guess it just depends on who you are, your personality type, and what works for you and what you what satisfies you. Yeah, yeah. Productively and all that. But like I guess with with classes and with research, um, and like different projects that I'm on, like it, it becomes very consuming in general. Like even like it's it's hard to do a PhD. It's not like a day job where I can like go in nine to five work and then like completely like turn my mind off from it it's funny you say this because i kind of do treat it as a nine to five a little bit i still think about stuff here and there like i'm always thinking about my projects and stuff for sure Mm -hmm. and sometimes i'll open my laptop and randomly start reading papers or doing whatever Mm -hmm. at home but at nih at least it's a little different i feel like because people like get up and do go to the lab since it's not like a university Mm -hmm. where we just like all live amongst the labs it's like yeah i don't know at least part of it is a lot of people go, get up and go, and then try to at least make their schedule fit into a similar to a nine to five. Yeah, yeah, I guess I do know? see that. But the I concept here more than other places I've been. But the concept is still, you're never, you're never off really from being a student or mm-hmm. a scientist in general because you just have to be ready for things to be happening in real time. Yeah, even if that means you're not there. But there are labs that there's always stuff. There's always people there. There's you know that's just part of. I think different lab cultures are part of yeah that. yeah and, and another thing that's often said and talked about is like finding the appropriate work-life balance for right. you um but like thinking about a situation like that where like well i can i can get my work done and sort of turn off in a way there's always something more you could be doing that yeah. I, I guess this gets into like maybe comparing yourself to your peers like we're, we're driven to like need to succeed in like the academic environment um, and oftentimes that unfortunately comes with looking around at our peers, seeing where they're at at this stage. And sometimes it feels like you're behind. Sometimes it feels like you're ahead. But it always feels like there's something more you could be doing. That is a whole other conversation that we're about to have right now. Is it about imposter syndrome? Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> yeah, we are going to talk about imposter syndrome. I've been trying to ask people about it recently because hmm. I've been trying to ask some postbacks and younger graduate students and friends who aren't in graduate school and like family and all that, if they've ever heard of this word. And it's surprising how many people have never heard of it before. Out of the science people and non-science people I've talked to, I'm just in general surprised that more people haven't heard about it on both sides, but I'm even more surprised that people within academia sometimes haven't heard about it until they get into graduate school. But that's actually kind of when I learned about it. I didn't really learn about it in college. But other yeah, people, I mean, yeah, I guess about the same for me. When I started my master's, I feel like that's when I start started to hear the term imposter syndrome. 
and I, I, it was something that I could like very easily relate to even like thinking back to college. Um, right. And, it, and we didn't explain what imposter syndrome was, but I, I'm hoping you've gotten enough context clues to tell that it's basically comparing yourself to other people within wherever you are, your environment and coming to the conclusion that you are not as good as them and you don't deserve to, to be where you are. And you feel like you've infiltrated mm-hmm. an institution and somebody's going to find out. You don't know what's going to happen when they find out. Maybe an even more toxic like degree of it is thinking like, oh, I don't belong here and I'm taking away this opportunity from somebody else who is more deserving. I, I've been there multiple times and like it's such a, a self-defeating yeah, that's true. Principle to think about. And but just know like that it's not true. You you earned your spot there. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> Don't add to it. I am just kidding. However, I think that that's mm-hmm. generally a really good rule to follow. I think that if you're in a good program and that already means that somebody has already scrutinized everything about you as a student and your potential and they made a decision based on on those judgments. Yeah. This is definitely something I've struggled with. It's very normal for this kind of, this, you know, it's not a real syndrome per se. It's just yeah, you, you really, really get in your head about how your self-value is just so much lower than all these people around you. And anyway, so it's it gets really, really stressful all the time for a long time. That's something called chronic stress. I've already struggled with it for a long time, right? Personally, as a student, I'm in the process of transitioning from one lab to another during my PhD. And uh, that's not something that you always do during your PhD. So for me, that's one of my my unique stressors of being in graduate school. But point being, it made me feel kind of like an imposter when I had a conversation with my boss and we were just not on the same page. And I had already kind of thought about like, what if I get kicked out? And then I kind of got over it and realized like, that's probably not a very realistic situation. It's not. And then it happened anyway. So that made me feel really like, okay, now now I really am an imposter. And so that was something I had to deal with kind of back in March. That was very heavy on my my own mental health. And that's something I try to be open about and, and all that stuff because it was like just also for me, it was out of left field and whatever. That's a whole other story, but everything's good there. And I'm progressing in graduate school. But that experience, I was like, wow, I've never been more solidified about feeling like, Oh, this is it. Yeah. When you're choosing a mentor um, in a program um, that you're going to do your dissertation work with or your thesis work with, uh, the the piece of advice is look for something who's like, look for someone whose work you're very interested in, but weigh it just as much, if not more, the fit, like the, the fit that you have with that mentor on like a personality level. And it doesn't always hold up, uh, but it, it's still something to be very mindful of, especially early on in your graduate work. Just because mental health is such an intertwined aspect of being uh, a graduate student, and your your mentor has a lot of influence and effect over what your mental state's going to be, because they're the one providing you with the work and the expectations of getting that work done. That that affects you, like at your core because your life is graduate student for two to five, six, seven years. Long time. And so it, it, it's critical to find somebody who you can vibe with. For real though, it sounds like 
silly to say somebody you vibe with, but for real. Thank you, Paul. That was an awesome piece of advice because that's not even really something I thought about until I was crumbling from my mental health in graduate school. And that's something Mm -hmm. that Paul and I think we can agree that we've both seen in a lot of people. They kind of learn what self-care is. Yeah. Like during graduate school because you... You have no other choice but to glue your psyche back together piece by piece every night before bed. Uh-huh. <laughs> then you wake up and there's just pieces on the floor of it. And you're like, how did that happen? But Whoops. you put it back, you put it back together. Let me stick this back before I go into work. <laughs> Sometimes I'll push them under the bed until the end of the day. Mm. And then I'll come back and figure it out. Tomorrow or next week or yeah. a month from now. Yeah. <laughs> okay. um, going back to what he was saying about that. That's a great point for any listener right now because... Anybody who is a student, is, wants to become a graduate student, knows a graduate student, either in friends or family, or if maybe your child is, you know, in doing something with graduate school, you just have to remember, and it's a really general thing to remember, and this applies to everybody all the time, but there are so many challenges with mental health. And it kind of sounds like just a very generalizable thing we can apply to whoever, but it's just part of the identity of being a graduate student because you're always being compared to other students and you're always comparing yourself to other students. And even though this is true for a lot of the things that other people do during their careers and all that kind of stuff, it's just part of the culture. And so we're not saying we're more stressed out than the average person, but something I mentioned before was chronic stress. That is something that a lot of graduate students will will succumb to yeah if you if you know somebody who's like going through the grad school process and you're friends with them and you care about them or your family with them like just check in with them make sure they're doing okay um because more than likely they're they're dealing with stressors that are, are very different than outside of grad school in a lot of ways there's also just not a lot of unfortunately there's not a lot of avenues to speak about it and so a lot of people do get trapped in their own bubble trying to figure out what's going on um and like just general depression anxiety can like be at a high baseline for a lot of people as they go through the process yeah and so just like like letting them know that like hey like if you need to talk always here like you got this buddy (laughs) i I mean it's funny because it's like i always say that the first year of graduate school was the year that i discovered anxiety because and what a year man let me let me tell you (laughs) um but uh it was definitely the year i discovered anxiety and i've told that to people before and a couple times i've had people go oh yeah haha like you know me too i i also discovered the word for that weird feeling i've had all my life and i'm like oh no i have never experienced that kind of like emotional state before until i was in graduate school and that really kind of made me realize how much you know just all my daily decisions as a student made and how it contributed to my my satisfaction about myself which there's just a lot of toxic kind of self-destruction going on sometimes when you're a graduate student for no reason yeah yeah well i i think there is a reason it's it's sort of an institutionalized reason that it's just not talked about enough yeah and then there's also been a lot of really cool things that have popped up recently um like i knew somebody back at um Chapel Hill when I was working there, uh, who started uh, a whole endeavor called PhD Balance, uh, Susanna Harris. And uh, she, I mean, she's running with it now. Um, I believe that she's working on it full time, maybe. I'm not exactly sure. But she she finished her PhD recently. 
there's a, lot, there's a lot of cool resources that are starting to come out and build around graduate student mental health mm-hmm. specifically because it is such a big issue. If you are a graduate student, it's okay to recognize when you're super stressed and so take a step back or or to recognize when you're super stressed and not take a step back but you have to learn what works best for you in specific situations some people honestly like myself i function pretty highly pretty well when i have physical anxiety but i don't like it it doesn't feel good but i can do it yeah i i'm not one of those people i think yeah i think they're both kind of common but yeah, I think yeah. that's a, that's definitely something we differ on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. When I when I get super anxious, uh, I I like definitely start to shut down and get less productive. But I I personally have fortunately, very very fortunately, have found a mentor who I who I can discuss that with and be like, hey, I'm feeling overwhelmed. Um, like I and I I can let them know that like I'm more than likely not going to be very productive and I just need to like step back for a, a small moment. So I can gather myself and then I can be more productive. And it's a, it's always a conversation. It's always, always very helpful. Yeah. It's, it's invaluable to have a, a PI, right? Or a boss lab person. Oh that, yeah. I guess we should maybe explain what a PI is. It stands for principal investigator. I'm assuming that just goes for all science labs anywhere. Principal investigator. That That's usually the general term. Every time I say PI, people are like, well, I thought you were talking about a private investigator. No, principal investigator. It's just people who run labs at research institutions. Yeah, they're like the boss. I don't know if I'll put this in here, but it's just, it's like funny to me because part of the reason I wanted to make this (laughs) this podcast was because my mentor was so good Mm -hmm. and we had such clear communication. So I thought about mental health. Mm Mm-hmm. Over the time that I was there, little did she know I was in the process of making a podcast about mental health and neuroscience. But regardless, to the time I was there, she was very, very good and really receptive to me doing the same thing, being like, oh, no, I can't. I don't think I can do it today. You know, I'm good with physical anxiety sometimes, but there's a threshold. The project I used to be on was actually all about stress. So I do know a lot about stress. Mm-hmm. And if you guys get bored, feel free to look up the Yerkes Dodson curve. Yerkes Dodson. Yerkes Dodson curve. I guess whatever. Yeah. I guess if you're bored, you're you're already bored because you're listening to the <laughs> to the episode. Um, do you think people listen to these because they're bored or because they want to catch up? Uh, I think it's because they're super interested and supportive of what we're trying to do. Oh, here. thanks, guys. So the Yerkes Dodson curve, and I don't have to get very much into it for you to understand it, but. It's basically just a relationship between stress, which we can also call arousal, right? And uh, our performance and doing specific things. So different events have different, what we would call good or bad performance, right? Like remembering a specific amount of items on a list. That's, you know, the more you know, the, the better you perform. So the, the relationship that's described by the Yerkes-Dotson curve shows that a little bit of stress will increase our our performance but then you get to a threshold where you kind of peak at your your optimal level where your optimal arousal will give you the best performance and then it kind of goes down after that so it's like a an upside down u if you can think about it it's called an inverted u so like low stress usually corresponds with like low performance and then as you start gaining stress you start 
having greater performance because it's motivating you. And then as the stress becomes too much, your performance starts going down because it's overwhelming. So that's a good interpretation. That's part of, you know, what makes it so interesting is that it doesn't necessarily have to be something that is or isn't motivating you or something that you're cognitively even aware of. It could be stressors like you could be like getting poked a certain amount of times and then take a oh. test and like do more poorly on the test if you got this many pokes but if you got mm. this many pokes you maybe did better but if you got you know this third level of pokes then I you would, wouldn't have done well that, that's why you like also said like arousal like it like puts you in right like, a heightened state where you're yes, maybe more exactly. aware or, like... and so that heightened state which i'm really excited to have this conversation for another episode but that heightened state of optimal performance is is also what we know as flow which some people know is getting in the zone or whatever. The flow state is basically just a state in which we are aroused by our environment in some way at the optimal level and we're doing we're doing the best that we <laughs> the best can. Best we can. But in a good way. We are doing, yeah. you know, better task performance than we may be without that amount of arousal. Mm-hmm. You know? And when you feel anxious, when you feel very anxious, that's an example of having very high arousal. So this works differently for some people, right? Some people are really physically anxious and that is enough to just freak you out as an objective concern. I'm, oh no, I'm shaking before a presentation. Then chances are you're not going to get up on stage and be able to, to talk yourself down. But if you're a little nervous and you're like, okay, well, I think I can do this. I'm well prepared. I did my mm-hmm. stuff. I can probably do it. I'm a little nervous, but I can probably do it. And then you just start, you open your mouth and you, sometimes you just, go into autopilot and you just can really really crush a presentation because you're you're highly focused and you're highly aroused but not too aroused gotcha so it's almost more like excited rather than like stressed out you can think of arousal as very neutral Mm -hmm. we can have high or low arousal but you can have good or bad arousal gotcha so you can think of you know if we're excited that still means we're stimulated but doesn't necessarily mean we're stressed out I thought that was a pretty cool relationship yeah, no, to definitely. talk about. I had never heard of the curve before. So. The Yerkes-Dotson curve. Yeah, really, really cool. And so one more lifestyle thing that I really struggle with. I don't know about you, Paul, to be totally honest. But it's like the second you get accepted into one of these these programs. And usually if you're getting a PhD or a master's degree, it honestly doesn't like it doesn't really matter where you go. The fact that you're going to get it and it's, you know, you follow through and get the degree is, is mm-hmm. really stellar and that's a huge achievement. So once you get into these programs, no matter where you are, all of a sudden, everybody has these high expectations of you. Just yesterday they didn't and all of a sudden they're like, wow, congratulations, you're going to be great. You know, and this is awesome and supportive in a lot of ways. But for me, I remember just being like haunted I was always kind of like the nerdy academic of the family. And like, I was like, oh, now I really have to do it. Yeah, yeah. No, they're all watching. Yeah. So I feel like I've, in a way, I've kind of experienced that too. Absolutely. Um, But maybe, maybe my experience, my experience obviously has been different because I'm not you. Um, But I guess like coming from the masters where I, I was, I was doing graduate work um, with the same mentor that I have now during my PhD. And, like, the expectations were high um, during the master's. 
but they were they were reasonable and my mentor always like made sure to to know that like this is more about coursework right now and like the research matters but it's not like the the precipice of what your master's is focused on um and so like the expectations were still high and like he my mentor wanted me to succeed except now being in a phd program um it's it's clear and it has been made clear to me that like the expectations have gone through the roof it depends on which perspective you're you're talking about i think and perhaps so yeah it's it's ha- it's hard to see being in the seat of the graduate student like what what's appropriate mm. um but i i feel like i have physically felt <laughs> in conversations that the expectations have gotten higher that like the stuff i should know the stuff i should be reading the stuff i should be doing day to day um during this phd like there there's more to it and i like my performance should be higher in certain aspects and it it's a it's a slow transition for me getting there and i i feel like i'm getting more comfortable with it and it's making sense as i learn more but i i don't feel like i'm there yet and so like it's just it it's always hanging over me and a lot of mentors and particularly for science aren't trained how to in teach teaching yeah that is something i do not know if people know so the people who are our bosses those pis those are just like pure scientists usually mm-hmm. usually they're not people who have taken a single course on education yeah like may maybe they've ta'd or had to like teach a right uh, like a lab or may, maybe even yeah. a, a course for a in semester graduate school in graduate school <laughs> years ago and then they get hired by academic institutions where part of their their package part of their deal is that in order to get some funding they have to one apply for grants uh from funding institutions to give them money to run the research which we'll talk about it more in the future too yes but then they also get some stability and some pay from the academic institution that hires them and what they have to provide is teaching and so it's in a lot of cases it's oftentimes not like the primary focus of these researchers to teach some people are naturals and they're great and they're awesome and they run with it and it's a beautiful thing in fact i would say that i'm a black sheep when it comes to an example of a PhD science student in general, who any PhD student who wants to teach that that has research involved in their field, usually your goal is to, you know, have a lab and run a lab and then, oh yeah, also teach. But <laughs> but what I want to do is I want to teach, teach. I want to be a professor, you know, at a university or a college. That's always been my goal. It's my, my current goal at the moment from the possible slight change. <laughs> but... It's not necessarily common for somebody to want to teach as much as I do without wanting to really do that much science in the lab. You know, I wouldn't mind doing some science in the lab, but it's very common to really focus on the research. And then your deal is that you have to teach the, the kids as well. And and that also does start, it, it also can be sort of translated to like a mentor-mentee relationship. Um, often there's really no training except through experience like maybe you're a graduate student and you're like mentoring like an undergrad or maybe you're a postdoc um, after your PhD and you're mentoring your graduate student in some capacity but the I think the amount of mentoring that 
um, a PI has to give to a graduate student because a graduate student has so much to learn. They're there to learn. They're there to learn as much as they possibly can about something that they care about. And it, it's the mentor's job to help them facilitate that. Um, but there's no formality in training mentors on how to be good mentors. And so it's a learning process for them. It's a learning process for graduate students. Yeah, it's it's hard. And sometimes it really doesn't work out the way you're thinking <laughs> regardless. So Yeah, it's, it's hit or miss for a lot of people. I think that's one more thing I, I want to mention before we kind of wrap it up with some of the life of a graduate student things is that if you do make a choice and it doesn't work out, you just don't don't hate yourself for doing that. You know, don't. It's no. fine. It, it's ha- fine. It, it happens to people. It's not a bad thing. And the one thing I tell people when they're going through tough times is that you are in graduate school for yourself. Yes. You are not there for your mentor. You are not there for other people. You are there for yourself. So if you feel like something's not working out, do what you can to change it. Because the more comfortable you are, the more productive you're going to be, the the happier you're going to be, the more fulfilled you're going to feel in doing what you're doing. I definitely agree. So one thing I wanted to kind of mention, which we'll talk more about for its own specific episode, because it's maybe even more than one episode, because it's very, very interesting and complicated, but so, so interesting is the stress system in our bodies as humans. So all these things we've talked about so far, it's, it's really not just things that graduate students would complain about. These are things that cause the physical release of stress hormones within our bodies, right? And different things stress different people out. So everybody is different to an extent, but we do have a way to measure when we are feeling physically anxious. And like I said, that's through an example would be stress hormones. A stress hormone a lot of people know about would be cortisol. That's maybe something that scientists know about, but Basically, you can think of cortisol and even epinephrine, which we've mentioned before, which is adrenaline. These are two hormones that are involved with how we perceive stress from our own personal brain chemistry. And there's a relationship with the brain and the body. So the brain, for example, if there's a stimulus that's stressful, such as a lightning strike right, or a thunderclap or something, and you hear it, and it stresses you out, what happens is that your brain, after all the the sounds get to this part of your brain and you make the conclusion that something scary just happened, then a part of your brain, which is the pituitary gland, the pituitary gland will send a signal, the molecular signal, through your blood to your adrenal medulla, which is on your kidneys. And then that'll release cortisol and epinephrine into your bloodstream. And then cortisol and epinephrine will go back up to your brain and click around in the receptors up there and depending on what's going on in your brain it'll affect some of us differently some of us you know like i said before will have an advantage and some of us will have a disadvantage with different kinds of stressors and so the hpa axis is what regulates that cycle and so if you want to learn more you can look up specifically the hpa axis yeah um, that's but a... we'll, we'll probably talk about it in a future episode in more detail maybe yeah definitely i thought that that stuff was really interesting because it taught me that it's okay to feel anxious sometimes because sometimes it's not my fault. Sometimes there's just, my body's just reacting and producing these hormones that are literally created to stress me out and 
actually induce what I'm sure a lot of you have heard is called the fight or flight response, Mm -hmm. right? That's the whole point of those hormones is to be like, should I get the heck out of here or should I keep going? Yeah. But so understanding that there are literally molecules in your blood when you're being stressed out, you know, if somebody's sitting next to you poking you over and over and over and over and over and you're getting really annoyed, it's okay that you're getting annoyed. It might also be just how the how the cortisol and how the stress hormones are affecting the part of your brain that can get you annoyed because that's how it works. Mm-hmm. I did mention before, a lot of people also go through this, but chronic stress is when we experience stress for a long time over a long period of time. This is why it's important to take care of our mental health because our mental health can actually affect our bodies physically. So going back to being a graduate student and experiencing whatever level of stress you might be, or, or maybe you're not, maybe you're kind of killing it, you know, <laughs> Then feel free to just, you know, <laughs> go be perfect somewhere else, I guess. No, but uh, <laughs> this is why it's important to to be aware of it. And there are a lot of things to understand about stress and how they affect our bodies. And if we stress other people out, like what that really means. And that's kind of how it can apply to any human who understands it a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then, I mean, it, it all it also gives a little bit of hope. Like it, it is stress is this very biological thing that's going on. And so there there are ways manage it whether that's like small things like breathing exercises in the moment or lifestyle changes because we we like graduate students so often internalize like deeply these these super high expectations and like that 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 can be what leads to chronic stress and so and the expectations are normally from yourself yeah most of the time so it's really <laughs> like you're a failure to no one else but yourself and mm-hmm. that just gives you this internal ongoing dread stress hormone situation yeah that's why you feel dread Mm -hmm. because of these kinds of hormones guys this is why we experience some of the feelings we do dread comes from experiencing stress hormones i think that'll pretty much wrap it up for today yeah comments questions concerns brainydays.podcast at gmail.com feel free to go follow twitter which is at brainy underscore days and then there's also an Instagram, which now has two posts. Oh, I was nice. proud of the episode list I made, but oh, it's pretty it much beautiful. Thank you. It's pretty much almost irrelevant already because we're about to drop this episode, but I'll make more in the future. Anyway, the Instagram has two posts, and that's rainydays.podcast. All right, Paul. So, are you glad that I, I junked the making everybody's rainy days brainier today? Yeah. Oh, come on. I, I I, I, I'm gonna make a shirt or something, and I think you need to wear it. <laughs> I, I just want to say one last thing. Like, grad school is hard. It's hard for a lot of people. And I just want to, like, give, like, a call to action. Like, we should discuss mental health in grad school more. Yeah. And stress and expectations and mentor-mentee relationships. Yeah. It just should just be talked about more. Also, it is not enough. don't hide it from your peers. Mm-hmm. Just tell them what's going on. I some of my some of the people I did not get along with in the beginning of graduate school have been honestly some of my biggest supporters now. Yeah. When it comes to and mental health. Th- there are people who will not be receptive to what you're saying. Very true. Walk away from them. That's the whole toxic situation. Yeah. We all know how we feel about toxic people, guys, right? We we don't like them. <laughs> we okay. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's it. I don't know. <laughs> we like that word. I don't know. Millennials like the word toxic. Yeah, they do. But it's true. That's a good piece of advice. Yeah. I just want to normalize talking about it. Agreed. And there you go. And that takes us back to 
why we made brainy days. Yep. That that's sort of like the main purpose, I think. At least from my my end. To make your rainy days just a little bit brainier. <laughs> just a little bit. I don't know. I'm into it. <laughs> okay. Thank you for listening, everybody. Yes, thank you. We'll talk to you next week. See ya. Peace.